Go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to Titus. Titus chapter 1 this morning. We're going to work backwards a little bit. Uh, We finished up kind of looking at the entirety of Paul's letter to Titus last week and took some bite-sized chunks over the course of the last week and or eight weeks. And this morning, we are going to to do a little uh, something a little bit different, and we're going to look at the whole letter together as we've spent our time together in God's Word of uh, in Titus in particular. I've encouraged you to take your Sunday afternoons to spend time reading through the letter. And this week I timed it, and I think you can read the letter in under seven minutes. Uh, it, I think that would be a, a real. If you open up your Bible app and use the audio version or the audio feature, uh, you can listen to all of Titus in about six and a half to seven, seven minutes, depending on what you're using. And so it doesn't take long. If, you're, if you have a seven-minute drive home, you can listen to all of this letter, and I would encourage you to do so. But this morning, before we dive in, what I want to do is just read the letter in its entirety and then think a little bit about some overarching themes that we see in this, in this letter that Paul writes to Titus. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's still a couple on the table back there. Feel free to pick one up as I'm reading. It's good for you to have these words in front of you. These are Jesus' words to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us, and they come to us this morning uh, with the same authority as if Jesus himself were here speaking to us. So I'm going to read this, all of this letter this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the, to- and the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they, are, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. 
They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to, I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This sermon is a little bit different. It might be a bit of a departure from what we usually do on Sunday mornings. Um, But usually what we do and and what we've been doing for the last eight weeks in Titus is breaking off little bite-sized chunks and chewing on them together. We've spent time now processing uh, throughout this letter, and we've seen some big ideas emerge. We've seen some ideas that Paul has for Titus, his protege, and we chewed on those and thought about those. And hopefully as you went from this place, each of the following eight weeks, you spent time thinking about those things. But This morning, what I want to do is I want to take out the whole meal and lay it all before us. Uh, Take a look at the house salad and the potatoes au gratin and the Brussels sprouts and the filet mignon and put it all out in front of us as Paul spreads 
uh, puts a table uh, or sets the table for us this morning. We want to consider the beauty of everything that's said together here uh, and not just one bite. Uh, It was a phenomenon on social media. Maybe this is still the case, um, but it was a phenomenon early in the days of social media where people would take pictures of their food and they'd post them and and everyone would look at them and marvel at them. Uh, Now I just send text messages when my wife makes a delicious meal. And, and some of you have been the beneficiaries of the, those even within the last 24 hours. But, uh, but it used to be that you wanted to share the, how food looked so, so good and the spread that was before you. When dinner comes out of the oven, the first thing that you exclaim as well is, you, the first thing that you say is, that looks good. It looks good. It looks visually. I see it with my eyes and it looks good. And so what I want to do this morning is zoom out. We read the whole letter together to zoom out and look at the entire plate, the entire table, and how it's it's spread out before us this morning. This this reminds me of what Solomon writes in the beginning of Proverbs. Well, it's kind of a third of the way through. But in, in, in Proverbs 9, Solomon tells us, he says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the high places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So the message that wisdom declares to the passers-by is short and sweet. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. But what this, these six verses show us is that the call isn't just a verbal one. The call is environmental. It's not just informational. It's the way that it looks and the way that it smells and the way that, it, you, can, that you can observe it with your senses, not just your ears. It is in a house that wisdom has built. Seven pillars she has hewn it says, which means that this house is complete. It's perfect. It's been, it's been, it's all done. It, what stands before you is everything that you need. It lacks nothing. And then wisdom went out and butchered the cow and put it on the table, uh, harvested the grapes for the wine and fermented those, put the, put the little cloth napkins, folded them into, uh, folded them into sailboats and set them on the table uh, to make it look all all nice, and then the call comes after the environment is perfect. After the environment is warm and welcoming and hospitable, wisdom then calls to those passersby, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see something that's true about God's word this morning. As we've spent time together in Titus, we've seen a lot of proposition. We've seen a lot of things that Paul tells Titus if you just read those individually, if you just look at those individually, you might be tempted to think, I got to do this, I got to do that, and I got to do these things, and I got to internalize these propositions in order to be a good Christian. But what Titus shows us and what all of Scripture tells us is that Jesus Christ is building his house. Jesus Christ is building his house. And just like wisdom, it's not a house made with, by human hands. 
It's a house made of people whom he has set apart for his purposes. He has given people, us, believers, new life in Christ. He's given us new birth. He's given us new hearts. And he is the master builder. He is building his church, seven pillars, perfectly hewn, whole, complete, fully prepared to lay siege to the gates of hell. Jesus says this in Matthew's gospel. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are defensive mechanisms. The church is on the move. The church is to lay siege to the gates of hell. Jesus Christ has offered himself as sacrifice in our place and has given us himself as a fully satisfying. He's the flesh, his flesh, he gives us to eat. And he is living water and he bids us to come draw from a bottomless well of pure water that leaves you without thirst. And you are now invited to sit around this table that Jesus Christ has prepared. You are welcomed into the house through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You will sit and you will eat food that will never spoil. It will never give you an ounce of indigestion. And it will, in fact, renew your mind and prepare you for the good works that Jesus Christ himself has prepared before the foundation of the earth, before the foundation of the world, so that you might walk in them. Friends, this is what scripture is and what it does for us. It is an intricately set table that we come to and we feast upon. We feast upon Jesus Christ. And this meal that we're looking at in particular this morning is Paul's letter to Titus, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, what I want to do together this morning is smell the aroma. Taste the flavors. Don't just come to this as a list of propositions or things to do, but come to it as a meal, something that satisfies your deepest longings, the words of God. And my prayer is that we would be encouraged to tell our friends just how delicious the meal is. It's okay to fill up your Instagram feed with pictures of this meal. Your friends may be annoyed saying, so-and-so is always posting pictures about what they're eating. But you can respond. Jesus invites you to come and taste the food. It's free. Is it free? It's free. In this economy, yes. The invitation comes to us in Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. The Bible, Scripture, God's Word to us is rich food and you are invited to welcome according to the grace of God. There is no payment that's required on your part that has not already been paid by the person of Jesus Christ. So come and eat. Be satisfied. King Jesus has built the house. He made the meal. He set the table. Now, you who are hungry, come to Christ. Trust 
in Christ. So, let's look together. Let's look together at this letter, the letter of Paul to Titus. And our time this morning will be guided by just one overview statement that comes to us through this letter. One statement gleaned from this letter. The statement is this. This letter is intended to deepen and strengthen our love for Jesus Christ. This letter is intended to deepen and strengthen our love for Jesus Christ. Now, this might be easily said based on what I've just said to you. This might be easily said about all of Scripture, but I want to point these things out to you this morning that come from this letter in particular. And if you read Titus, again, you might be, in, you might be tempted when you read through it this afternoon in those six and a half or seven minutes, when you sit down this afternoon to read through it or listen in your Bible app, you might be tempted to see the things or hear the things sort of like a church playbook. You might be tempted to think to yourself, well, this is like a, a, a football game, right? That we, we're going to run a dive play and uh, the offensive line are the, like the elders of the church who are going to create a hole in the defense by driving back cultural conformity and staving off, off uh, false teaching. And then the fullback is like an older, more mature believer that goes through the hole, leads through the hole as a lead blocker and takes on the middle linebacker, the middle linebacker uh, who, who's clearing a path for younger believers to grow in maturity. And then the running back is like a younger believer who takes the handoff and follows his blockers, getting into the secondary, breaking a couple of tackles, uh, and things like and maneuvering beyond things like dissension and divisiveness. And then we're going to score a touchdown for good works and for Jesus and everyone's going to be excited and the word of God won't be reviled. That's not a good way to read this letter, although that was an, a fun little illustration. Um, it's not the way that we ought to read this letter because the playbook approach misses the mark. Uh, 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle wrote that the aim of the church the aim for us, those who have trusted Christ and who have been brought together and set apart by Jesus Christ, the aim of the church when studying God's word is this. Christ rightly known, Christ truly believed, and Christ heartily loved. And so, this letter is intended to deepen our love for Jesus Christ because it shows us this. It shows us how Jesus Christ is building his church. It shows us how, in detail, how Jesus Christ is doing the very thing that he told his disciples that he would do. Jesus Christ. And, and the question is, well, how? How is Jesus Christ building his church? And how does that cause us to love him more? Three things I want to share that we've seen in this letter so far. How is Jesus building his church? The first is this. Jesus is building his church in unlikely places. Jesus is building his church in unlikely places. Titus finds himself in Crete. Uh, it's a place of rampant immorality. It is a place where of dramatic paganism. It is a place where men were lazy deadbeats and they owned it like a badge. The women cared nothing for their homes and everyone, we're told in chapter 3, hated everyone else. Even there, 
Even Crete, even a place that fits that description and would own that description for themselves. Jesus Christ chose to build His church there. Jesus is building His church in unlikely places like here. Like Jamestown, North Dakota. A town of, say, 15,000 or so people in a flyover state whose claim to fame is a giant buffalo off the interstate. Even here, Jesus Christ chooses to build His church. And if you think that Jesus Christ and God have forgotten this place, you are mistaken. You are gravely mistaken. Big moves of the gospel have come from places just like our community. Jesus Christ is building his church in unlikely places. This should cause us to love Jesus Christ even more. Because he has not forgotten even the most forgettable of people. He has not forgotten people in the little island in the Mediterranean. And he's not forgotten people in the middle of North Dakota. Jesus is building his church in unlikely places. The second thing we see in this letter to Titus is that Jesus is building his church with unlikely people. Titus himself is a testament to this reality. Jesus building his church with unlikely people. Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile who Jesus saved through the ministry of Paul, a former Christian murdering Pharisee. Jesus is building his church with you and with me. And no matter your past, no matter what you've been a part of in your past, no matter your family history, Jesus is using you to build his church. You are an undesirable rock in the middle of a field that a farmer wished to plow and you got in the way. He wanted to plant and harvest where you were. You were a dead weight and you were in the way. And so you got discarded on a rock pile somewhere off the beaten path, and that's where Jesus met you. Jesus met you in a place. He sought you out. He redeemed you through his blood, and now he is using you as the material to build his church in an unlikely place. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is building his church with unlikely people. He is taking things that the world did not want, discarded, threw aside, and is putting them together intricately in order to build for himself a perfect house with seven pillars hewn of stone. Jesus Christ is building his church with unlike, in unlikely places, with unlikely people, and in unlikely timing. As a pastor, I get emails all of the time from people marketing to me, uh, and it's usually about how to grow, grow your church. And most of it is just marketing strategies, secular marketing strategies, and brand loyalty aimed specifically at, at a church. And according to them, our lack of church merchandise is why the cool kids haven't checked us out yet. Um, and so, that, but, but the reality of those things, is, that's what they tell me. That's like, those are the words they use. But the reality of it, though, is that employing man-made strategies means that we do not trust in God's timing, in Jesus' own timing, 
as he builds his church. Man's timing is not God's timing. Jesus takes, again, what's described in the place described in Titus, in Crete, and he takes the people who are far from God and he uses them. He builds them into his church and he does it in his timing. Elders in the local church warding off false teaching and cultural conformity. Mature believers in the body of Christ investing in younger believers who need them. Putting on Christ in the workplace and the public square like we see in chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. Simple obedience to God's word. Keeping saturated in the truth of the gospel. The world likes big and explosive and flashy and fast, but we preach Christ and Him crucified. It is Jesus and the heart work that He does in His timing that we're after as a church. Brothers and sisters, let me say that again. It is Jesus and the heart work that He does in His timing that we're after. The lasting work is done over decades. It's done over centuries. It's not done in 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. It is not done in in a short span of time. Friends, this is why we say it is imperative for us as a church to devote ourselves to this space and devote ourselves to God's word. We devote ourselves to this space and to God's word because God is forming us through these things. And if we're quick to abandon them for other pursuits, if we're quick to choose other things on Sunday, or quick to negotiate away our own personal time in God's word, these types of things take long time and they're formative. The lasting work is done over long periods of time. Friends, the good news here is that we serve a God who is not up against the clock. He's not up against the clock. He created time. He is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation and that includes time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. The work of Jesus Christ in building His church and the wisdom that He employs, this seems slow to us, but we keep preaching Christ. We keep living in simple obedience. We keep living according to sound doctrine. And we let Jesus Christ Himself, through His Word, train us in patience while we wait for the fruit of the harvest. This letter is intended to deepen our love for Jesus because it shows us how Jesus is building his church in unlikely places, with unlikely people, in unlikely timing. This letter is intended to deepen our love for Jesus because we begin to see his way of building his church outlined in his word. When we submit ourselves to his word, we begin to see just how lovely his ways are. And how lovely He is. And how He bids us to come to the spread that He has set the table for us. To us, on the outside, 
Everything that he might do seems to be in a strange place, with strange timing, with strange people. We must see that when Jesus Christ is building his church, it is always in the right place at the right time with his perfect choosing of the people. On the flip side, when we refuse to see how God chooses to do his things in his way, and when we don't submit to these things, when we don't see the gospel and sound doctrine as important, or we see them simply as passe, or we see appointing elders according to the word as it is described here as an outdated leadership strategy, or we see investing in the next generation as an undesirable process, ineffective and outsourceable, when we see personal preference and opinion as truth, that represents a heart that is far from Christ and that does not love Christ. But a heart that is deeply in love with Christ sees that those things, even though contrary to the wisdom of the world, are in reality what's best, true, honorable, pure, lovely, etc., etc. So brothers and sisters, as we've spent time together in Titus, my question to you is this. Do you see this letter as a mechanical process? Do you see this as best practices for the church and then that's it? Or do you see the loveliness of Christ which undergirds the whole thing? The grace of God appearing. Look at verse 11 in chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then verse 4 in chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Jesus Christ appearing, redeeming you, regenerating you, renewing you, making you whole, setting apart not just to get something at some point in the future, but setting you apart for good works, to be his representative here on earth in the here and now, freeing you to participate in Christ's perfect work, in the right place, with his chosen people, in his perfect timing. What our modern Christianity has done is take a letter like Titus and has begun to separate two things. The reality that Jesus Christ came to save a people and redeem them, redeem a people for his own possession, and then our participation in the local church. We say that those two things are separate. In modern Christianity, the local church has become a suggestion to aid in some kind of something that you need when you become a Christian. We're not quite sure what it is, but it looks like showing up every once in a while and shaking a few hands and smiling and then going and doing, going our own way. But that is mostly optional. Of course, we say this, that involvement in the local church does not save you, but rather your salvation you have been saved into the local church. We oftentimes, as Christians, create categories that do not exist in the New Testament. One of the categories that we've created in, the, in modern Christianity that doesn't exist in the New Testament is the churchless Christian. We detach and reattach and float around like free agents and somehow we've been led to believe that that's just fine. Someone looks at us the wrong way or says something stupid to you on a Sunday morning. And because our feelings are too, far too often our true north, 
we begin to think that God might be telling us to go to the church three blocks down. I'm not saying that people are perfect. Of course they're not. I'm not saying that people don't hurt us. Of course they do. I'm not saying that someone didn't say something stupid to you even this morning. It probably was me. But that would be foolish of me. It would be foolish of me to say that those things don't happen. We all have to shed this sinful flesh that we still inhabit. And upon the resurrection from the dead on the last day, we in fact will. But in the meantime, what I'm saying is what is fundamentally true about the local church is not compromised by the sinful actions of sinful people. They are called to repent and have every opportunity to do so. God is patient. He is forbearing. As our sin is revealed to us, sometimes in the next moment after we sin and sometimes years down the road, we are called to and given every opportunity to repent. If the people who repent, if they do so genuinely and Christ has freely forgiven them, why would we withhold forgiveness and bail out on brothers and sisters of Christ for what appears to be greener pastures? Because let me tell you this, when the pastures look greener, when things look greener on the other side of the fence, there are just as many cow pies over the fence as there are here. And you'll quickly be abandoning those pastures as well because it smells just as bad. But friends, if we actually believe the gospel, if we actually believe the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us, then even our, the greatest offense against another person within the church can result in amended relationship if there is true repentance. There are legitimate reasons to leave a particular local church, but the New Testament warns us against departing from the church indefinitely. So friends, we must see the loveliness of Christ, and that has to undergird this whole discussion. The one who died so that you would live. And again, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us clearly, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should receive repentance. Jesus is patient towards sinners, and that means as those who are putting on Christ, as those who are in Christ and putting on Christ, we should be patient with them too. What's described in this letter isn't a mechanical process for squeezing ourselves into a church that looks a particular way. But what is described and what's given to us are the words of life given to beautiful budding communities of faith that are being built up into maturity in Christ. Several times throughout our study of Titus, we've come to the end and we've concluded and we've asked several questions. And hopefully those questions have led you to think and take action throughout the week as the Holy Spirit impresses upon you these words. We're going to do that again this morning. Some of these questions are going to be the same questions that we've asked and some of them are going to be different. I'm going to give you four of them this morning. But I want you to consider this before I ask these questions. Would you take time this week to genuinely think through these things? As you personally read through the Bible, as you read through the Bible with your kids or with your parents, as you read through the Bible with someone in your community group, as you think about these things, think about these questions. They're mostly printed in the 
in the worship folder this morning. When you go to community group, talk about them with your community group. And go to community group this week. And be prepared to talk about them. When you go, be prepared. Be honest with each other. The Bible tells us that it is as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the other. We often go into situations and places where where there are, in fact, other believers that would be able to sharpen us and we leave it in the iron in its protective covering. We throw up facades. We don't want to show people what, what, how dull we actually are. We often approach brothers and sisters Christ not throwing up walls and barriers, worried about our reputation, worried about what others might think. But if you want to be sharpened, you have to take the knife out of the block and apply it to the whetstone. Take the knife out of the block and apply it to the whetstone. The gospel doesn't make allowances for hiding. The gospel doesn't make allowances for hiding. The gospel says that no matter how nice you look like on the outside, apart from Christ, you're dead. It exposes you. A corpse in a three-piece suit is still a corpse. What's described in chapter 3, verse 3, is where we all were. For we were... For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was our position. The logic of the gospel, though, says that all of your attempts at hiding are utterly futile because God has seen through it all. He sees clearly who you are. And when God sent Samuel to anoint Israel's next king, And Samuel saw Jesse's oldest son, David. 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7 says. Oh, I'm sorry. Jesse's Jesse's oldest son, the king being David. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus Christ sees your heart. He doesn't see whatever you've thrown up this morning. He doesn't see whatever you throw up when you go to community group. He doesn't see the barriers and the the desire to preserve your reputation around the people who have professed Christ and said, we have been utterly humiliated by the gospel. It has shown us our abject need, our complete and total dependency on something that is completely and totally outside of us. Jesus Christ sees your heart. And even then, even when you were what was described in verse 3 of chapter 3, he made you alive. You are now hurtling not to the grave and to death, but hurtling towards an eternity of life. What are you hiding from? Why do you fear men in whose nostrils is breath? Gospel logic says, discard your attempts to look good. But the solution here isn't to mope around and talk about the junk that you are. The solution is to praise the name of Jesus Christ who plucked you out of decay and death and set you on a trajectory for life forevermore. So ask these questions as someone who no longer needs to save face. 
The gospel has exposed you already. If you truly believe the gospel, it's exposed you already. First question is this. Do you love the gospel? Do you love the gospel? Paul's entire argument to Titus is predicated upon the fact that these Cretan churches would be saturated in the gospel. Friends, you cannot love something that you don't know. You cannot love something that you don't know, and you will not live according to something that you cannot love. Guilt or manipulation might be decent motivators for a season, but they will not produce life-changing effects in a person. They are a tyrants that always lead to rebellion. Love, on the other hand, brings about true, lasting life transformation. Not a feeling. Love isn't first a feeling. But the love of God in his infinitely deep and eternally unwavering commitment to his people, that is love. If you love the gospel, and again, I don't mean what stirs some kind of affection in you, although it very well might do that. But by asking the question, do you love the gospel? I mean, has it become the governing truth of your life? Has it genuinely been become the filter through which you run everything in your life? How do you respond to God's love put on display for you in the person of Jesus Christ? Who lived the life that you couldn't, perfect obedience to God. Who died the death that was rightly yours because of your sin, not his. Who was buried and raised on the third day and ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father at this very moment reigning over all creation. And for all who repent of their sin, all who trust him for the forgiveness of their sin, those ones have forgiveness of sin and right standing with God and are freely justified by faith that joins them to Christ and are adopted into God's family. This question, do you love the gospel, must come packaged with the understanding that God has an unwavering commitment to you as a person and doesn't just feel warm fuzzies for you, but that for all of eternity, he will hold you in his hand and that nothing ever for all of eternity will be able to snatch you out of that position. Can you fathom that kind of love? Can you begin to understand love that isn't just a feeling? And when you don't feel something towards something, do you think to yourself, do I really even love this? Ask yourselves, am I committed like God is to me in Christ Jesus? Do you love the gospel? Are you committed to it? Do you recognize that it is your source of life? And that apart from it, you are hurtling towards an eternity of death and hell, separated from God. This question, do you love the gospel, is also meant to prompt other questions. Do I know the gospel? Can I articulate the gospel to an unbelieving friend or family member? Do I regularly meditate on the truths of the gospel? How does the gospel impact everything in my daily life? Brothers and sisters, my first question for you is, do you love the gospel? The second question, if you're a relatively new believer, might help, um, help you begin to understand the gospel and love it more deeply. Second question is for a particular demographic. As an older, more mature believer, are you investing in younger believers? This is one of the primary points that we see here in, in, the, in the letter. The beginning of chapter 2, Paul points us to the reality that 
It is absolutely essential for the life of the church for older, more mature believers to be investing in younger believers. We see it in Paul's relationship to Titus. And people in churches sometimes think to themselves that they should redirect their energy away from simple investment in younger believers and move towards bigger and better endeavors. Ask questions like, what if we put on a big event and invited everyone who makes a decision for Christ to write it down on a card so we can measure our fruit? But notice that Paul never suggests that. And really, the New Testament doesn't either. Paul tells Titus, rather, small investments, plodding along, bearing with the younger generation, patiently and faithfully giving them Christ over and over and over again and waiting for fruit, consistently pursuing younger people when they say they don't have time. Older Christians, let me say this to you. If you're older in this room, you define that. Are, Are you trusting Christ with your energy? Are you trusting Christ with your energy? You probably have a little bit more time than you did when your kids were in the home. You probably had a little bit more, a little bit more time be, when they were in school. But if you feel like your energy is waning and you're slowing down a bit, you have to trust Christ with this endeavor. You've had to trust Christ in so many areas in your life. You've had to trust Jesus in so many areas of your life, in so many situations that some of us in the room can't even fathom. Trust Jesus that he will give you the energy you need and supply all of your needs to invest in younger believers. Step out in faith, trusting Christ with your energy. And maybe you have other objections. Maybe you feel like you're doing, you're, you're, you've got the energy that you need at this season. Other objections though. Have you tried to invest in younger believers before and it's gone really poorly? That might be you. Is that stopping you from trying again? Do you find the next generation confusing? Do you think that you have nothing to offer? Friends, Jesus can be trusted with these things too. He can be trusted with all of these things. Older, more mature believers, are you investing in younger believers? The third question then is for younger believers. Are you willing to be invested in? Are you willing to be invested in? When you're young, you don't know uh, what you don't know. And you're tempted to believe that you have it all figured out. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says you're not saved by your knowing or having it all figured out. And so for younger people, let me just encourage you, skip to the front of the line of life and admit that you don't have it all figured out. Our world despises older people. We cannot do so in the church. Because the gospel humiliates us and quite literally humiliates us. It finds us in a place where we thought we probably had things pretty good and figured out. And it moves us to a spot that requires us to admit that we cannot make a way for ourselves. No bootstrap pulling up, no life experience, no good deeds, no theological fidelity, no rounding our total up to the next dollar at the Taco Bell drive through it can't save you. None of it can make a way from you, for you. It is completely outside of us that a way is made for us. It's completely in the person of Jesus apart from us entirely. So if you're a younger believer, the question is this, are you willing to be invested in by older believers? Final question. 
Is your aim in reading and studying God's word Christ rightly known, Christ truly believed, and Christ heartily loved? Again, sometimes we see a letter like this one that's before us. We see a letter that that exists like this, and we see a bunch of to-dos that quickly become overwhelming or undesirable, so we just say, well, just like, forget it. Maybe I'll think about that later. But the goal here isn't to work harder or do better. The goal is to rightly know Christ and to truly trust Christ and to heartily love Christ. What Jesus has done for us is make us the church a people, a people who belong to him, a people who are set apart for good works, a people designed to live according to God's word, a people who are freed to invest in one another with no concern of losing out on time or energy, a people compelled to love one another, not in feeling only, but deep commitment to each other that does not bail out on the first sign of trouble in relationship. Jesus does all that for us. And we, we love because he first loved us. And we know, believe, and love Jesus. We see not burdensome commands or a bunch of lifeless suggestions, but we savor the meal that is set before us. And we find joy and satisfaction and long to see others welcomed around the table as well. When Jesus came to Martha and Mary's house, you probably have heard this story at some point. When Jesus came to Martha and Mary's house, Martha was obsessed with the appearance and the work and the fact that Mary wasn't pulling her weight. And in frustration, Martha tells Jesus to command Mary to get to work. But Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Friends, Christ sets the good portion before us this morning in his word. Through diligent reading and study illuminated by the Holy Spirit, Christ sets himself before us to be rightly known, to be truly believed, and to be heartily loved. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these things this morning. God, would you now transform us by the renewing of our minds? God, would you cause us to see that you have called us to not just do a bunch of stuff, but that you have called us through the person of Jesus Christ. You have called us to come and feast, to be satisfied, to have our deepest longings met. God, would you not be tempted this week to look for that in different places, in places that are not Jesus Christ? God, would you cause our hearts to, to be fully satisfied with Jesus God, would you cause us to ask these questions deeply and sincerely of ourselves? Would we recognize that we cannot hide from you who sees the heart? God, would you cause us to see that we should not fear men in whose nostrils is breath? God, would you cause us to be sharpened by one another as a church as you seek to fulfill your purposes in Jamestown through us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.